If you are a guest, we've been walking through a series on the book of Genesis called Foundations. In the last couple of weeks, we've, we've entered into the life of Abram, and we're going to be watching this man for, uh, for probably the next couple of months, if I get my math correctly. And I want to start out before we jump into the text by asking you a, a simple but important question. When was the last time you were so overwhelmed by the grace of God that you were just left in awe and wonder? When God came through for you in such a way that you least expected it and yet greatly needed it. I hope that there's, there's some memories that are popping through your mind right now. So maybe it was a, a time of spiritual apathy and God woke you up. Or maybe you were in a place of great need, financial or, or health or relational, and God answered your prayer and he came through for you and he provided for that need. Or maybe you were in a dark state of depression and the light of God's grace and his love came crashing through letting you know that you weren't alone, that he was with you. Or maybe you were in a place of outright rebellion. You were running fast away from the Lord and God rescued you. He redeemed you and he restored you and brought you back to himself. Or maybe, maybe you're in that place right now. Maybe right now you are desiring, you are are desperate for God's grace. You're longing for God to break through. As I was thinking about this, uh, you know, one, one story kind of flashed into my mind for me personally. I remember I was in one of those places of sort of spiritual apathy. I was in uh, college, and I was in my uh, Nissan Sentra, tiny car, and I was on I-10 going east back to Jacksonville, and I was just driving relatively around the right speed limit, and then all of a sudden, you know, like Florida does, like this crash of uh, the storm comes in, this thunderstorm, and it's beating down really hard on my car. And instead of slowing down like I should do, of course, like an idiot college student, I was like, I'm going to keep going. I'm going to keep going fast. And so all of a sudden, I start hydroplaning, and my whole car does a 360 going 70 miles an hour. And the car doesn't hit anything. And it's almost like God just takes up my car. He puts it on the side of the road, and it stops. I look around like Wow! And then I, uh, I, I'm like, what, 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 do I, what do I do next? You know, like, well, I guess I get back on the road and I start going. And and even even though I was going the same direction, it was almost like God was saying, "Don't go in that direction any longer. Wake up to the realities of my grace. I love you. I want you to turn back to me." BB Warfield he defines grace in this way. He says it's God's free, sovereign favor to the ill-deserving. Let's see if we can see the other quote up there. There it is. John Stott calls grace this way. He says, grace is love that cares and stoops and rescues. This is where we find Abram. If you guys were here with us last week, he has been shown God's amazing grace. If you weren't here last week, you missed a doozy of a story. It's a story that's not typically in children's Bibles, like None of them. Uh, It's pretty crazy because uh, here God is. He's promised Abram a land and a people and a Savior who will bless all of the nations. And Abram, at the first sign of trouble, in this case, a, a severe famine, instead of 
staying at the altar of Bethel and worshiping the Lord and trusting in the Lord. Instead, he runs away from the Lord to Egypt, to a land of pagan idolatry to get help. And of course, as you may recall, running away from the Lord did not lead to blessing for Abram. It only led Abram into a downward spiral of lies and deception. And ultimately, it ended up with his wife being brought into Pharaoh's harem. I mean, this is awful stuff. The promises of God appear to be at risk. But aren't you glad that God holds on to us more than we hold on to him and his promises? And so at Abram and Sarai's greatest point of weakness, God's grace comes crashing through for them. He sends a great plagues upon Pharaoh's house and rescues Abram and Sarai out of that place of perpetual misery. He even blesses them with additional possessions as they leave Egypt. Pharaoh's so, so strong, he's not like, hey, I think you might ought to go. He's like, get out of here. You've got to leave. I remember from Pastor Paul last week, this is a tie-in to the people of Israel. He's saying, guys, just like Abram, you too were rescued out of Egypt, out of a place of slavery, through plagues. You too have a God of grace who is going to carry you through the wilderness and on the way into the promised land. And you too need to hold on to the promises of God because you're going to be tempted over and over and over again to turn away from me. But it's also a great sermon to us because we're like Abram as well. But at the same time, in our greatest point of need and our greatest point of weakness, at our lowest place spiritually— We are never too far from the reach of God's grace. Amen? Reverend Charles Simeon, he says this. He says, There are but two objects that I have ever desired to behold. The one is my own vileness. It's my own sin. It's my own depravity. And the other is the glory and grace of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And I've always thought that they should be viewed together. So at God's, excuse me, at Abram's greatest point of weakness, of sin, God's grace shines the brightest for him. And in the same way, God's grace shines brightly for us. And this chapter 13 is really to be part two of what happens once God's grace comes crashing through for Abram. And we ought to ask ourselves this basic, basic question. How are we to respond to the grace of God. When the God of amazing grace rescues us, how are we as believers called to walk by faith and not by sight? So today's sermon, it's pretty simple. It's entitled God's Amazing Grace. And here's the, here's the big idea for us. A big idea is this, that as believers, God's grace should lead us to return, to relinquish, and to rest in him So if God has truly invaded our lives, which he does over and over and over again, he's always calling us to return back to him, to relinquish everything to him, and to rest in him and his promises. And so if that is kind of an introduction for us, let me pray for our time this morning. God, we praise you this morning that you are a God of amazing grace. 
that there's no sin, there's no weakness, there's no trouble that is too great for you. And so just as we are, are seeing the life of Abram and you rescuing him, I pray that we would see ourselves in this story and that we would respond to your grace the way that Abram does as we, as we watch it carried out in his life in Genesis 13. Lord, open up our hearts, open up our minds to behold your grace and to respond to it in faith, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so first, God's grace should lead his people to return. God's grace should lead his people to return. Abram, he had forgotten the promises of God. He had given in to fear, and he began to take matters into his own hands. He left the land of promise, and ultimately he sought to leave the God of promise in order to go to the land of Egypt. But as we know, God does not leave Abram. You can't run away from God. And so God wakes Abram up to the realities of his sin. He rescues him by his grace. And then we see in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 13, it says that Abram goes back up from Egypt, from the lowland to the highland, up to Canaan, he and his wife and all that he had, and Lot went with him into the Negev. And then he is on his way back to the promised land. I actually want to watch this, um, look at this map real quick, just to kind of give you an idea of what's going on geographically. So you can follow. So Abram starts in Ur. He's called out of Ur. He goes to Haran first. Then at Haran uh, is where some of his family settles, uh, and his brother passes away. He takes Lot down with his wife and his possessions, goes down to the land of Canaan. And then you can see, number four, it says that he goes into Egypt. And now he's on his way back up through the Negev, which is a desert or kind of a wilderness area, back into the promised land. So he's basically going back where he came. He's returning. And this is a great lesson for us about repentance. Repentance means turning away from our sin and turning back to God. It's like the prodigal son for Abram, where the prodigal son, he kind of wakes up to the realities of his sin, and he says, I've got to go home. I've got to, I've got to go once again to meet with God. The last time I know that God spoke to me was at Bethel, and so that's where I've got to go back. But this return is not without consequences. I mean, I want you to think about this for a second. His wife was in Pharaoh's harem. That is a long walk back. We're talking about months from Egypt to Bethel. We're talking about some long stairs from his wife. We're talking about pain and sorrow over his sin, over the hardness of his heart, over running away from God. We're talking about going back to a place that God had spoken to him. And he's going to have to come back to the Canaanites and the Perizzites and kind of say, I messed up. But he's willing to do whatever it takes because that's what repentance called him to do. There's a lot of cost that's involved in returning, but it's worth it. It was worth it for Abram. It was worth it to have those tough conversations with his wife. It was worth it to go back to God. By the way, um, it doesn't say that the famine is over. 
there's no meteorologist in Egypt, right, to say, hey, yeah, the famine's fine. You're good. You can go back. He has no idea how he's going to find the land when he arrives back. But he says, whatever it takes, God, whatever it takes, I'm returning back to you. And so after a long, long trip home to a land, Abram also returns to a person. And this return in verse 4, it says it culminates in worship. Our repentance should culminate in worship. It says that he went back to Bethel, to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. So it's almost like Abram is planting his flag in the middle of the Canaanites once again. And he's taking hold of the promises of God once again. He's resolute in his faith to return to the Lord. And he's saying, God, I remember your promises. I'm holding on to you. I'm asking you for you, for you to lead me wherever you, wherever you call. I'm going to go. I'm going to follow you no matter what. See, for a while there, Abram had forgotten who he was. He had forgotten that he was a child of God. He had forgotten that he was loved by God, that he had been rescued by God, that he had been adopted into God's family, plucked out from Ur. He had forgotten all those things. He had given into fear. But now, now he is turning back to faith. He's trusting in God. Eugene Peterson calls faith a long obedience in the same direction. And that is the direction that Abram's going on this journey back home. And I wish I could say that I have no idea what Abram's experiencing. That, oh yeah, I don't, I don't know what it means to forget about God. But I suffer, and I'm sure we probably all suffer from the disease that Paul Tripp calls being a gospel amnesiac. We suffer from gospel amnesia. We forget who we are. And we turn away from the God who loves us and who purchased us with the cost of his son's blood. We forget about the promises of God that says, I've got good plans for you. And every single day, God invites us, whether it's a a little bit of sin that we've turned into or a lot of sin, every single day, God invites us to return to him, to trust in him, to follow him wherever he leads. I I was thinking about this um, related to a a guy who I was meeting with, um, him him and his wife, about a month ago. And I love this story um, because I I got to be a part of that story a few years ago. He had participated in redemption groups. Um, He came in really kind of away from the Lord. He was was wandering. He was searching. He didn't really feel God. And, And I wish I could say that over the course of those eight weeks of participating in redemption groups that Everything was fine, that he was good once he left, but that wasn't the case. Uh, he still was in a place of darkness, a place of, of just lostness, and, and, it, and it continued to lead, lead him farther and farther away from the Lord into really the land of Egypt. And eventually it, it caused great harm to his marriage and just not connecting with the Lord at all. But I, but I love the story of God's grace because um, a month ago he said, God met me. Uh, It actually happened as his community group was laying hands on him and a friend in the community group said, hey, I was there. 
I was there too, and, and, I, and God met me, and I pray that God would meet you. And so they laid hands on him, prayed for him, and then God answered those prayers on his way to pick up his son. He said it was like black and white turned to color. He saw life for what it really was. He saw God for who he truly was. And over the last several months, his life has never been the same. His marriage has never been closer. He's walking with the Lord faithfully. It's beautiful. That is the God of grace, the God of rescuing grace that reaches down, that stoops down and pulls us out and says, return to me. So what about you? Have you forgotten the promises of God? Have you left the Lord in search of greener pastures only to find out that they don't really satisfy? Well, God invites you to return to him today. Remember, as Pastor Paul talked about last week, where are you, where is your Egypt? Where is your Egypt that you're going to in times of being stressed out, in times of doubt, in times of fear, in times of loneliness, in times of struggle? Where are you turning to Egypt rather than turning to the Lord? God in his marvelous grace is committed to rescuing and making your Egypt as miserable as possible so that you will see that he's enough for you. And when you return, when you return to him, I want to just encourage you, return culminates in worship. Uh, One other thing to note is that this act of worship at this altar, this is a public act of worship. Remember, this is an altar in the middle of heathens, people who don't honor God. And so when Abram is coming to this altar, he's very much, in a real sense, making his faith public. He's saying, God, you are enough for me. You are my God. Faith should never be private. It should be a public matter. It's why we gather together publicly here. We are in essence sort of returning to the Lord every Sunday morning saying, God, I'm returning back to you. God, you're enough for me. God, I want to trust in you. And then we're to out of Sunday morning, leave into our neighborhoods and our schools and our workplaces and say, I know this God of grace. He's rescued me. He's redeemed me. And it emboldens us to share about who he is and what he's done for us. First Peter 2, he picks up on this theme after it says that God took a, a people who are not of mercy and he gave him mercy. He says this in First Peter 2. It says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. That's what we are, right? We're wandering. To abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. That is our calling. So if you find yourself this morning in the land of Egypt, I just want to encourage you, return to the land of promise. Return to the God of grace where you will find grace and mercy in your time of need. And then as Peter calls us in that passage, live out your faith publicly so that others can see your good deeds and give glory to the God of all sufficient grace who is there to meet their needs as well. So we like to say, um, based on Genesis chapter 12, we are blessed, Abraham was blessed in order to be a blessing to those around him. So God's grace, it leads us people to return. Second, God's grace leads us people to relinquish. So last time Abraham was at this altar, he absolutely failed the test. 
But God does not give up on Abram. He gives him another opportunity, another test. He's back at this altar once again. And it's hard to see this in our English Bibles, but um, in chapter 12, where it says that the famine was severe, it also can be translated, it was heavy. And that same Hebrew word is used in this section of scripture where it says that their possessions were heavy. It's connecting here that there's the second test that Abram is given. And this time, let's see if he meets the test. Verse five, it says in Lot, who went with Abram also had flocks and herds and tents so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together. For their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. And so you've got these Canaanites and Perizzites. Canaanites most likely were city dwellers and Perizzites were more of like the suburban people, the Kalarn people, right? Um, And they are already in the land. And as a result, there's not much land that's left for Abram and Lot. And so both groups of herdsmen, they want what's best for their master's flocks. And so there begins to be this strife between them. There's this fight. And as a result, there's this test. What is Abram going to do this time? Last time, The famine was heavy. This time his possessions are heavy. What's he going to do? Verses 8 and 9. Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. We are brothers. We are family. It's not the whole land before you. Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. So here's, here's an amazing thing. First, Abram initiates with Lot. He sees there's this conflict. He sees there's a strife and he seeks peace so far as it depends on him. He wants to initiate with his nephew, have a conversation with him. But then not only does he initiate, then he even invites his nephew to take take the first step, to separate first. And by the way, this, this is unheard of for this time. You see, at this time, Abram had every single right to choose first. He was the oldest. He was the patriarch of the family. He had more wealth. He had more possessions. He had more animals and livestock. And most importantly, he was the one who God had already promised this land to. So Abram had every right to say, this is my land. Lot, you get a little tiny spot you know, way off in the boonies. But this is a different Abram that we see this time. You see, the the God of grace had invaded the heart of this man. And rather than running away from God, tight-fisted, trying to hold on to his possessions and protect his possessions, this time Abram stays put and he relinquishes his right to the land and he entrusts the decision to Lot. And ultimately we know He entrusts the decision to the Lord. Instead of holding tight-fisted to his stuff, open-handed, he says, God, I relinquish my rights to you, whatever you want. You see, before, possessions and wealth and public reputation were the center of Abram's identity. But now, now the God of grace, God of grace, 
He was able to relinquish and trust in this God who owned it all anyway. And he knew that God was going to fulfill his promises anyway. He didn't know how it was going to happen, but he knew that God was faithful. And so he said, Lot, take your pick. Ultimately, God, you're in charge. See, Abram had eyes to see, and we're going to see in this passage a couple of different times contrasting Lot with Abram and this idea of what we see. And so Abram had spiritual eyes. He saw the spiritual kingdom rather than the physical one. Matthew 6, 33, what does it say? It says, seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added unto you. And this is what God's grace does in the hearts of his people. It causes us, instead of holding tightly to those things of this world, instead we hold loosely to the things of the world and we only hold tightly to God and his grace and his kingdom and his promises. And we say, that's enough for me. What about Lot? What does he do? What does he see? Well, I wish it Lot had followed his uncle's new example, but instead he really follows Abram's old example. Verse 10. Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Little parentheses right there. Some foreshadowing. So Lot chose for himself all, all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. So Abram owned wealth, but wealth owned Lot. Whereas Abram's eyes saw the promises of God and his spiritual kingdom, and he wanted to see that grow, Lot's eyes only saw the land and the physical kingdom, and he wanted that to grow. Lot was heavy in possessions, and that burden weighed him down. He chose all the Jordan Valley, not just some of it. And as a result, he started moving closer and closer to Sodom and Gomorrah. And so as we see in verse 12, it continues on. It says, Abram settled in the land of Canaan while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked great sinners against the Lord. So Lot really repeats Abram's fault in chapter 12. And it's a picture of idolatry, that whenever something is so tightly held onto by us, we'll do whatever it takes to keep it. It's called an idol. Anything that's put in the center of our hearts rather than God. Tim Keller in his book, I highly commend to you, called Counterfeit Gods, he says this about what an idol is. It's an idol is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seeks to give you what only God can give. A counterfeit God is anything so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. But all idols ultimately disappoint us. All idols ultimately enslave us. Idols blind us to the reality of our enslavement. They offer freedom when in reality they just pull us in and keep us tightly stuck in our chains. They become even more burdensome. For Lot, his burden, his idol was wealth and possessions. 
As we'll see in future chapters, it leads him, because he wants those wealth and possessions so much, it leads them closer and closer and eventually in the city of wickedness called Sodom. He wanted to do whatever it took to get that idol. I wish I could say, though, that I can't relate to to Lot. I can. We're all, as John Calvin puts it, idol factories. We're constantly churning out new things to satisfy us, new things to fulfill the longings of our heart. And every single time, it doesn't satisfy. There's um, There's a guy by the name of Alexis de Tocqueville. And he says, uh, he says he was going to the, the people of America. He was going to check it out for the first time. He was making observations. This is back in the 1830s. And he looks out and he sees the people and he sees the culture. And I think it even speaks to today's culture as well. He said that there was such a strange melancholy that haunts the inhabitants in the midst of abundance. Tocqueville found that Americans believed prosperity would quench their yearning for happiness, but such a hope was elusive. And so he wisely concludes with this observation. He says, The incomplete joys of this world will never satisfy the human heart. Folks, where are you feeling that sense of melancholy this morning? Where are you feeling that sense of heaviness, that, that incomplete joy of the world that will never satisfy your human heart? You know, we're all idol factories, right? And so whether it's money or it's reputation or it's work or it's sports or it's academics or it's sex or it's success or it's relationships or it's food or it's exercise or it's fill in the blank. We're constantly churning out more idols, thinking that they're going to satisfy us, and they never do. They never satisfy the human heart. So where are you tempted to turn to rather than God this morning? And may I encourage you, that heaviness that you feel, that sense of melancholy that you feel, that is not a sign that God has abandoned you. That is a sign that God is moving closer to you and helping you to see that it won't satisfy. It is a grace to you. He's inviting you to throw off the weights, to throw off the shackles, and to embrace once again his grace, his love, his joy, his peace, his freedom that he offers to you in Christ. As Peter, 1 Peter 5, 7 says it was, cast all your anxieties, all your cares, or you could say all your burdens upon the Lord Because he cares for you. And as we see with Abram, as he begins to cast his burdens upon the Lord, it leads to rest. That's our third point. God's grace leads his people to rest. Let's read this last paragraph. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes. Here we go, your eyes. But these are spiritual eyes, not just physical ones. Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are. I want you to see northward. I want you to see the land. I want you to see southward. I want you to see eastward. I want you to see westward. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. 
I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. So here God restates his promise from Genesis chapter 12, but he expands his description. So he promises to Abram a land and a people and a future inheritance that far outweighs anything that Abram could imagine. And now he's, he's right here in the land and he's able to see everything and he sees with spiritual eyes, not just physical ones, all that God is going to grant to him. And after walking through this land, almost as a way of walking in obedience to what God has called him and trusting in the promises of God, it says that Abram settles down. He sits. He rests. No more trying. No more fretting. No more running. No more going crazy. Only resting in the one who is faithful who will give everything that he needs. It's interesting because he's still in a tent. It says he settles in a tent, but he builds another altar, a permanent altar to say, God, you are my fixed reality. Not my possessions, not my status, not my riches, not even my family. God, you are the one fixed reality for me. You are everything. Now, I wish I could say that Abram rested completely, but we know that there's some ups and downs along the way. But every single step of the way, the constant is God's grace. So keep bringing him back. Keep catching him. Keep drawing him to himself. And so Abram, he's in a tent, but he is resting. And by the way, those two words, mamre, it means fatness and fullness. And Hebron means fellowship. So Abram fellowships with God and experiences the fatness and the fullness of all that God has for him. On the other hand, Lot, he moves his tent closer and closer and closer and closer to Sodom and eventually is absorbed into the city. Gets rid of his tent, moves to a city, but that city is a city of wickedness. So here's what's amazing. I want to say this as well. Lot looks really bad, <laughs> really bad right now. But I want to encourage you, if you feel like you're Lot this morning, First Peter, excuse me, Second Peter chapter 2, it says that Sodom was so wicked and Lot was so convicted over his sin, it says that Lot cried out to God and God rescued him. It even calls Lot righteous. So you are never too far away from the reach of God's grace. And God is there to offer you rest in him. As we know from the scriptures, though, this promise of a physical land and a physical people and physical inheritance, it echoes and foreshadows something that's much greater. Hebrews chapter 11, it says this about Abram. It says, by faith, Abram went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. And it goes on that chapter of 11, 
the heroes of the faith chapter, it says that all of these heroes of the faith were promised something that they didn't get in this life. It was looking forward to a city whose designer and builder is God. This land was foreshadowing a future land with future people and future promises. And so like Abram and like those heroes of the faith, we too are invited into those same sorts of promises. We have the promise of a perfect land. It's awaiting us with no more pain, no more sorrow, no more sickness, no more sadness, no more suffering, no more idolatry. Instead, it's a place with streets of gold. It's a place with a a river of life that never runs dry. It's a place that Jesus says, I'm preparing for you, that where I am, you will be with me forever. This is a place that has no need of sun because the glory of God is shining brighter than the sun. And it's shining brightly on the faces of those who look to him. It's not just a promise of of a land. It's also a promise of a people. It's a people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. It's a family forever that's knit together into the tapestry of God's redeeming grace. That's established through faith in Jesus Christ, the Son. It's amazing stories, personal stories, unique stories to each one of us under the grand story, the grand narrative of God that says, I'm redeeming a people for myself as far as the eye can see. A number, as Revelation says, that no one can count. That's the people that we are invited into. And there's also the promise of an inheritance of blessing. A blessing of experiencing forever the unimpeded, uninterrupted, always and forever love of God. It's the blessing of experiencing life as his kids forevermore. We are co-heirs with Christ. That means that every blessing that Jesus receives, we receive as well. It's a blessing of forgiveness. It's a blessing of acceptance. It's a blessing of approval. It's a blessing of love. It's a blessing of being declared righteous and holy and set apart for God. And it's the blessing of being able to reign with Christ forever, for all eternity. I mean, these are incredible blessings, and this is the promises of God that he holds out to his people to say, I know this life is hard, but don't trust in this life to satisfy. Trust in me. Run to me. Put your altar planted firmly in front of all to see that you're trusting in me. That you're sojourners. You're passing through this life, and you are on to the promised land to trust in God and be with God and rejoice with God's people forever. Is this promises that we can rest in? Absolutely. And so I want to remind us of how we get these promises. As we prepare our hearts for the table this morning, let's look to Jesus. So Jesus is the greater Abram. See, what Abraham did imperfectly as he sought to return to the Lord, as he sought to relinquish his rights to the Lord, as he sought to rest in God and in his promises, Jesus does perfectly. Remember, Jesus enjoyed perfect fellowship with his Father, perfect blessing, perfect communion with his Father. And he was worshipped by the angels. He was worshipped by all those around him, and he relinquished those rights as the Son of God. He came down. 
He humbled himself, born of poor parents, even went to Egypt as a refugee, returned to the land of promise as a foreshadowing of us who get to return to God. He was obedient to every single point of the law, and then he was crucified unjustly for us. He gave up everything so that we could have everything. But as we know, the cross isn't the end of the story, right? The death of Jesus was, was not the end. The grave couldn't hold him. Satan could not defeat him. Jesus rose from the dead. He ascended. He returned to his father, and he's ascended and seated at the right hand of God. He is resting. He is settled. And we are invited into that beautiful display. We can follow his example and say, I'm relinquishing my rights to you, God. I'm resting in you, and I look forward to returning to you forever and ever and ever. So if the God of grace has met you today, I encourage you, as you come to the table this morning, return to him. Relinquish everything to him and rest in him both now and forever. Let's pray.